There's an English idiom or figure of speech, the tie that binds. There have been movies titled this, songs, a hymn. Uh, it's been used throughout the English language for centuries. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to say the tie that binds? Well, it's that, that thing of commonality that pulls together a certain group of people in a certain time, a certain place. Well, in the early church, you had so many varying cultures. Jews had a very distinct culture, system of beliefs and way that they lived, even the foods that they ate. Greeks, completely different. You had people from all over the world uh, that were gathering to these Roman cities, Ethiopians, and people bringing different customs and backgrounds. But to the early church, Jesus was the tie that binds. He brought them all together as one, and there was no place where that was more portrayed, lived out, manifested, pictured than at the Lord's Supper. They would sit together and feast and eat a meal even though they were very different. And that was so counterculture to the first century. A Jew would not eat with a, a Greek, but they did at the Lord's Supper. The rich and the poor would not feast alike, but they did at the Lord's Supper. And at the Lord's Supper, it was much more than just observing a piece of bread and wine. It was actually a meal in honor of King Jesus and an expression of the fact that He is the tie that binds this morning, we're continuing our sermon series, Counterculture. We're looking at how to live for Christ in a world that isn't. And the church at Corinth, they were a mess. Uh, so if they could figure out how to live for Christ in their world, then there's hope for us today. And as we've seen in 1 Corinthians, it's not really following a doctrinal outline, maybe like the book of Romans does. Paul is just addressing one issue after another with them. And now he's having to address, address issues of the Lord's Supper. And it really should be no surprise to us that they had issues at the Lord's Supper because selfishness, self-centeredness was really the root problem in Corinth. And it just worked out in different ways. The, this pride of life, the, this selfishness, the, this self-seeking, this ambition of self, it worked its way out in factions among them. And it worked its way out, even we'll see in spiritual giftingness and their boasting over certain spiritual gifts. So it should be no surprise that they also had issues at the Lord's Supper. And, and what we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians 11, I invite you to, to turn there with me. We're, the sermon is titled, The Tie That Binds. And we're going to look at the, the issues that Paul addresses within the Lord's Supper and what that has to do with our life today. Because the Lord's Supper is not something that we just observe together on a Sunday morning and then it has no application to our life when I leave. The Lord's Supper is something that it's a reminder to us of what life should be like each day of the week, of each moment, of each day that God gives us life. So 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17 is where we're going to pick up. So we left off last week, and Paul, in the Greek, we translate it here, verse 17, as now, in giving these things. Again, there's a signal that Paul is changing topic, and he's saying, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. 
For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Now, what's happening here that's a little different than some of the issues he addresses is that often when Paul's addressing an issue, we just have Paul's side of it. We don't get an explanation of the issue. He just addresses the issue that they know about. So what's happening here is he's actually going to explain to us a little bit more what the issue is. And he's saying when they come together, there's divisions. So we know that that's a problem. And he says, verse 19, For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now, look, just because you are in a church house does not mean you're a Christian any more than being in a garage means you're a car. Being a church member, actually, does not even mean that you're a Christian. I have known people that got saved in the pastorate. You can cover up a lot with doing religious things. And so when people say there's just a lot of hypocrites in the church, yeah, there are, and if you're in the church, you're one of them. Uh, Because nobody lives a perfect life completely consistent with what they say 100% of the time. Everybody that has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ is a hypocrite in that sense. And that we never live 100% consistent with what we profess to believe. So we can just get that out of the way. Well, yeah, you're a hypocrite too, okay? Being in a church, being a part of a church, confessing to be a believer, here's what it means. It means I've acknowledged my need, that I'm desperately in need of a Savior, that Jesus is the Savior that God has provided, and now by His grace, I'm trusting God to forgive me because of Jesus, for His Spirit to fill me and to help me live a life that pleases Him, because I have no hope of doing that on my own. That's what it means. That means that look at me, I've got it all cleaned up and figured out, and I'm going to be perfect from here on out. That's not what it means. What Paul is saying is, look, when you gather together, there's, there's going to be some issues because, well, we're a work in progress. And, and that's why grace is so needed. We're all growing along spiritual lines. We must be gracious with one another. And he's saying these divisions are just really kind of revealing where people are. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat. The Lord's Supper. He, he's saying, you may say that you're taking the Lord's Supper, but what you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper. Now, you must understand the Greco-Roman meals, the background there. I'm not going to get into all this. I'm not going to nerd out on history on you right now. But what I want you to know is a Greco-Roman meal was very different from the Lord's Supper. They ate and they ate and they ate. And this is going to sound gross. Then they went and they threw up so they could come back and keep eating. That, that is historically documented. They drank and they drank and they drank, and, and they had servants that would carry them home if they were too drunk to walk. I mean, it, the Greco-Roman meal was known by excess. And when I say excess, you can't underestimate that. Excess, completely over the top. And what Paul is saying is, and we'll see this teased out here in just a moment, he's saying, look, you say you're coming together for the Lord's Supper, but it kind of looks like those other meals is what it looks like. It says, for in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. They say, look, you're loading up your platter plate at the beginning of the line. You're not leaving any potato salad for the people on the back. 
And it says, and then you're sitting over there getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Saying, what's the matter with you? In fact, look, look what he does. Verse 22, that's exactly what he says. What? <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What are you thinking? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's like, if you're that hungry, you know, have a power bar before you leave the house. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So again, Paul's like, look, we've got to work out some stuff. Now, is Paul just trying to be hard on them? Is he just trying to beat him up, give him a guilt trip? No, he's saying, look, I love you, and what you're doing is not good, and so we need to talk about this. We need to correct it. And we'll see as we continue the passage, there were some serious consequences taking place in Corinth because of the way they were observing the Lord's Supper. Now, one thing that we do note, and I just want to touch on it, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the Lord's Supper was absolutely a meal. Two of the previous churches I've been at, we have transitioned to observing the Lord's Supper as a meal. Not 100% of the time, but most of the time. Because that is, without doubt, what is portrayed in Scripture it is a meal. It has its backgrounds in the Passover. God had called Abraham to follow him, and the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, were to be a light to the world. But they had ended up in slavery in Egypt, and God delivered them. And God sent the, the, his angel through the camp, and all of the firstborn of Egypt were struck dead, but the Israelites were spared, the Jews were spared, because they had sacrificed the lamb and they'd put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, and it was God's Passover, because God passed over them. And God delivered them, and God brought them to Mount Sinai, where he gave them his law, which was, in essence, a covenant, where God was saying, look, this is how you walk with me as your holy God. And a part of that law was they were to continually observe the Passover every year. Remember that Passover meal. To remember that God purchased them as his own special people. Where else would we hear terminology like that, where God purchases his own special people with the blood of a lamb? So they were to keep this Passover over and over again. When Jesus sat down with the disciples at what's known as the Last Supper, it was clearly a Passover meal. And what Jesus did is he fulfilled it. That's what Jesus does with all of the law. He fulfills it. And so what he did is he took the bread and he took the fruit of the vine and he said, now this meal is fulfilled in me. And so keep it, keep the meal, do it often. And as you break the bread, remember my body that is broken for you. Remember my blood that is shed for you. So when the church celebrated the Lord's Supper, they are having a feast in honor of the Lord. See how that happens? So they're gathering together, they're eating a meal together, saying this meal is in the name of our risen Lord, King Jesus. And when you had the rich and the poor and the Greek and the Hebrew and all of these different people feasting together, the ancient world looked at that and thought, that's crazy. We, don't have, we do not see that anywhere else, people getting together like that. And, and Rome at first allowed it because they thought that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism, so they allowed it for a while. But the more they heard these Christians feasting in the name of King Jesus, Caesar didn't like that. But the Lord's Supper was absolutely a meal, and the first century Christians absolutely observed it as a meal. 
If you read through the Gospel of Luke, you see that meals are actually very prominent through the Gospel of Luke. One that you may know very well is involved in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember the younger son? He said, Dad, I don't want to wait for you to die. I want you to give me my inheritance now. And he took his inheritance and he went and he spent it on prodigal living. Wasteful living. Then he gets to such a low point, there's a famine in the land and he has nothing to where we assume, based on how Jesus tells the parable, he's a Jew and he's working pigs. So, so, you, so to them, to the hearers of the parable in the first century, you couldn't get any lower. A Jew working a pig farm was as low as you could go pretty much. And it says that he desired to just fill his belly with the pig slop. And that's how low he was. Then he came to his senses and said, my father's servants are better than this. They, they have food to eat. They have a roof over their head. His servants are taken care of. I'm going to go back home and just ask dad if I can just be one of his servants. I've wasted my inheritance. I realize I'm, I'm not a son anymore. Maybe he'll just make me a servant because I know at least my dad's servants are treated well. And so as he was still a long way off, his father had been looking for him. His father saw him. His father ran to meet him. What does his father do? He holds a feast. He has a meal to celebrate that that one which was lost has now come home. See, that's what, in a sense, we're observing in the Lord's Supper is that the Father has made our way home. Because in the story of the prodigal son, the son says, Father, just, just let me be your servant. And he says, no, we're not hearing any of that. You're my son, and you're home again. And you will always be my son. And at the Lord's Supper, we remember that there is a lamb who was slain and his blood was shed, and his body was broken, so that the Father can look at us and say, Welcome home, my child. And that's what we observe at the Lord's Supper. And it was absolutely a meal. Ah, I don't have time to get into all this. I, I was going to actually nerd out a little bit on you. But in the first, second, and third century writings, we see how it progressively moves from a meal to, to something else. And it involves many factors. But it was absolutely a meal. And there's really no reason at this point in time why we shouldn't at times celebrate it as a meal. In fact, I've seen that be uh, a very joyous and, and fellowship-building time in the life of a church. And that may be something we do in the days ahead. There's only so many things I can do in my first four and a half years that that wasn't something I wanted to tackle yet. But, but that may be on the horizon. But here's what I want to talk to you about this morning, about how it not only impacts us here, but it impacts when we leave. Let me give you this first point, and I'll explain it more. The Lord's Supper is a meal of unity, equality, and worship at the foot of the cross. It is a meal of unity. Because when we come together, we are observing the body that was broken, the blood that was shed for us. And Christ did not do that for us to be dispersed abroad, factionalized in our own little groups, separated. But we understand there's one head, his name is Jesus, and he has one body. And we're a part of that body in him. 
It's a meal of unity. We come together. It's a meal of equality. You see, when you stand at the foot of the cross, you realize that I'm only a child of God because of Jesus. When I come to the Lord's Supper, I'm reminded that it's only because of Christ's blood. It's only because of his body. And that means I'm, I'm never any better than anyone else. Because the only good that is in me is because of Jesus. That's why the Bible says consider others before yourself. Take up the mind of a servant. Take up the mind of Christ. Humble yourself. Care for the needs of one another. Care for the burdens of one another. Because if we really come to the foot of the cross and we understand, man, before God we're, we're all in the same boat. And it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that we're saved and forgiven. It's a meal of unity. It's a meal of equality. And it's a meal of worship at the foot of the cross. Because we do have a Savior. We do have one that has died for us. We do have one that has risen for us. And so we worship him and we remember him and we look to him. You know, in high school I played football and on Friday nights, here's what would happen. Or on Fridays, here's what would happen. We'd get to the end of our school day. Then we'd have a pep rally. Then we'd go to the locker room and we'd change into whatever we were going to be wearing that night for the game. Uh, under, our, under our pads, we'd make sure all of our pads were our thigh pads were in our pants and our knee pad. And we had, you know, had everything how it needed to be. And then we'd walk over to the cafeteria. And what would we do at the cafeteria? We'd eat dinner together as a team. Every Friday night, We'd have a spaghetti dinner, spaghetti and meatballs with a side salad and garlic French bread. Every Friday night, we'd have that meal together. And here's what impressed me about that. You know, high school is a tough place. And there's little cliques. And so during the week, and our team was a 3A private school in Dallas. It was small, so a lot of us played both sides of the ball, offense and defense. And even though we had JV and varsity, a lot of times you'd have freshmen or sophomores that were, you know, second string or whatever on, on the varsity team. So you had, you had a large group of, of people, diverse group of people, I guess I could say, that were pulled together for that team. So who we are, we're sitting down to eat. Now, at that moment, we're one team, we're eating dinner together, we're getting ready for a game, we, we have to play together as a team or we have no hope of winning. But you know what? During the week, if I passed you in the hall in school, I may not have liked you. In fact, when I was a senior and if you were a freshman and I didn't like you, I may have just pushed you in the locker just because I could. You know, and so during the week at school, you, you know, eh, I may like you, I may not. You may like me, you may not. But on Friday night, when we sat down to eat, we were one team on a mission together getting ready to play football. Now, if some testosterone-filled high school boys can be unified over a Friday night game, how much more should believers in Jesus Christ, bought by the blood of Jesus, be able to put aside our egos, our selfish ambition, and the pride of life and say we are one in Jesus Christ? Let's continue on. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul in verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Don't, don't forget that. 
on the same night he was betrayed, Jesus went to the cross knowing how we would fail him. Specifically, this is talking about Judas, yes. We betray him every time we sin, though. Being God, knowing every sin I would ever commit in my entire life, he still went to the cross for me. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. Did you notice that? Did they have a meal? Sure sounded like it. They broke bread at the beginning of the meal. They had supper. They had a cup at the end of the meal. Saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And now Jesus does not legalistically set down how often we're supposed to do it. He just says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, what are we doing as we have the Lord's Supper? You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So here's our second point. We're going to get moving quickly here now, is that the Lord's Supper is a meal of sacrifice and hope. So, so as we feast, we realize that someone has died for me. God has died for me. A sacrifice has taken my place. But also, because there's been a sacrifice, I have hope in that which is to come. I have a place prepared for me. Heaven is my home. Yes, I'm forgiven now. Yes, I'm filled with God's Spirit now. But I also have something waiting for me. God has prepared a place for me. The Father has a home for me. And the Father will welcome me home. So there should be a hope. Again, the Lord's Supper, it shouldn't end here. You know, you, you see this, this unity, this equality, this worship, it doesn't end here. It, we carry it with us. This is just a reminder of the unity we should live with every day. This is just a reminder of the equality we should live with every day. This is just a reminder of the worship that should encompass every moment of our life. And so it is a reminder of the sacrifice that should forever be before us and the hope that it is a Christian's privilege to live with. This world is, is not all there is. That'd be depressing if it was. Death does not have the last say. That'd be depressing if it did. The grave is not my end. That'd be depressing if it was. And many live there. Many live wondering if the good is going to outweigh the bad. Many live thinking the grave is the end. But not for a believer in Jesus Christ. We have a hope. And so what are we looking for? We're looking for his return. And Jesus told many parables about his return. That, that the fact that he's going to return should be a hope that fuels us, that keeps us going. One of the parables he told was, was about widows that kept their lamps burning. And Katie and I get to go to the Holy Land and in, in January, one of the things I brought back was an oil lamp. I'll let the, the camera zoom in on this. They say that this oil lamp was from about 500 A.D., but you know, I, don't, I haven't had it authenticated, so who knows? I could have gotten taken or maybe not. I don't know. But this lamp represents, it looks like, it, it, it would have been the type of lamp that they would have carried. 
This would have been a personal lamp. So when Jesus told the parable about the virgins that were waiting for the bridegroom to come, they would have had a lamp like this. They would have put oil in here. They would have lit this wick. They would have kept the wick trimmed. They would have had to have extra oil to add through the night. And so this would have been a personal lamp. And this would have been used to guess what? To look out. Where's the bridegroom? When's he coming? And then to light the way as they, they followed him with the bride. They kept their wicks burning. They kept looking. They kept waiting. They had an expectation. And so it should be with us. Christ calls us to, man, he's coming any minute. Jesus could break the clouds today. At any moment, he could show up. And we get to live with that hope because a sacrifice has been made. Now, let's look at the last part. I want us to move quickly into the Lord's Supper so we're not rushed through that. Verse 27, here's the command there, uh, bringing it back to us of what we're to do to prepare ourselves. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord, whose cup is it? It's the Lord's. In an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's serious. Now, none of us are worthy, adjective, in and of ourselves, but we can come to the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, adverb. Every word of the Bible, we believe, is inspired and is exactly how God wants it to be. And the fact that unworthy is an adverb and an adjective is significant. Because it is speaking of the manner in which we come, not of the value of the person. None of us would ever be worthy in and of ourselves. But through Jesus, we can come in a worthy manner. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine who? Himself. Now, if you're preparing for the Lord's Supper, and even as I'm preaching, you're thinking about what somebody else has done or what somebody else is doing, you've already found the part of your heart that you need to get right before you come to the Lord's Supper. You take care of yourself. Let God take care of other people. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. This is why Paul's addressing it so hard. This is why he's really going after them. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were observing it. They were conducting the Lord's Supper in such a way they were so offensive to God that God had struck some of them dead. Here's the scary part. Even though some of them had been struck dead, they still weren't changing. Isn't that crazy? But that's the foolishness of sin. We will persist in sin when it is complete insanity. And Paul's saying, you've got to stop it. You've got, to, you've got to address this. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. God does not punish us as a harsh father. He disciplines us with his loving hand. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. There's a purpose there. There's a loving purpose there. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Going back to what he said at the beginning. You know, quit loading up your platter plate and make sure everybody else gets some corn. Okay? But if anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. He's got to mention that again. 
This is not a Greco-Roman meal. This is the Lord's table. Lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I'll set in order when I come. It must have been pretty messed up when he couldn't even get to it all. They're like, look, let's just handle the high notes. Just work on that. And when I get there, I'll finish straightening out the rest. That's, you're pretty bad shape when Paul can't even get it handled in one letter. And you're like, there's still more we'll have to deal with. Here's my third and final point this morning is this. The Lord's Supper belongs to the Lord. We're invited to dine with him. What do I mean by that? So many times we have the mistaken belief that we're in control. And especially when we come to the table, we should be reminded that it's his. He sets the direction. He sets the tone. He tells us what's right and what's wrong. He is true. There's a famous missionary, Elizabeth Elliot, that her husband had, had died in Ecuador when they were ministering to a tribe there. And he was, well, he was murdered by the tribe they went to minister to. She ended up going back, spending two years with them. Amazing woman, amazing missionary, author, speaker. She passed away years ago. But she told a story about her son, her, sorry, her brother, Tommy. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot told a, a story about her younger brother, Tommy, that when they were growing up, Tommy used to like to get into the kitchen and pull out all of his mom's plastic bags and play with them on the floor. And their parents, Elizabeth and Tommy's parents, said, well, you can play with those on the kitchen floor, but when you're done playing with them, you have to put them up each time. We're not, we're not going to come pick up your mess. So you can play with them, but you have to pick it up. You understand? Yes, I understand. So little Tommy, he'd get out the bags, he'd play with them, put them up. One day, mom and dad were out. Tommy got the bags out, played with them, made a mess all over the kitchen floor, left his mess on the kitchen floor, went and started playing the piano. Parents come home, mess all over the floor, Tommy's playing the piano. Tommy, get in here. We told you you could play with these, but you have to pick up your mess. When you're done playing, you have to pick up the bags. His response was, yeah, but I'm singing songs to Jesus on the piano. And his dad looked at him and said, Tommy, saw, <laughs> Tommy, Jesus is not listening to your song when you're being disobedient. We can very easily slip into the mentality of going, I'm doing this, this, and this for God, so it's okay that I'm disobeying him in this area. Sin is deceitful, isn't it? Well, I'm serving in this area of the church, and I'm doing this for my family, so it's okay if I have unforgiveness here. Is it? You see, it's the Lord's table. And when he says, come this way and feast with me, that's what he means. And if there are things in our life that we cannot, we have not at this point been able to let go of, then what we need to begin to pray is, God, make me willing to change. That may be where some of us need to start. Man, I've tried to let go of this and I can't. Well, how about you begin to pray that God makes you willing to change? But start somewhere. Start somewhere.